of Paul's with this Colossians. Paul has um, uh, been writing to that church after learning of their conversion and following after the Lord and he has uh, been talking to them about how happy he is and how he has been praising the Lord and thanking the Lord for what the Lord has been doing in their lives. And in our text, he is now kind of changing a little bit and uh, talking about the Savior that provided this, this work and this uh, salvation. And so we're beginning, and we've already covered quite a bit of this text, but we're going to be in Colossians 1, 15 and 19. There is an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow there. The text kind of goes through a four-fold stage where it talks about Christ as the head of the church and then Christ who is the source or the originator of the church and then Christ who is the firstborn from the dead. We'll get into that because we talked a little bit about that the other day. And then also the, the goal of all of these things is that he would have first place and everything really a privilege i've been really been uh, enjoying looking at these scriptures and kind of studying them and going through them um it's just very humbling in a way and yet very encouraging also to see the greatness of our lord and how he loves us and cares for us and has given himself such a, a majestic savior and such a powerful work that he has done on our behalf. And uh, I continue as I go through this text, ask the question, what is my response to him? And what is my response to this? Because I don't think you can know these things and remain uncommitted or casual unless you're dead. I mean, spiritually dead. And so it's, uh, it, it, it's really a very serious text that we're looking at as we start uh just quickly i'm just going to kind of read through verse 15. first of all it talks about our savior this is review by the way this is uh we've already looked at this i'm just kind of getting a running start verse 15 talks about our savior's connection to god it says he who speaking of our savior the lord who is the image or the icon, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, that our Lord is, first of all, in our understanding here to God the Father, he is the image. He was able to tell the disciples there in John 14, Philip particularly, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that Jesus is referred to in the scriptures as the Word, um, which is a revelation, uh, and he is we, he is both the communication from God as well as the unveiling of God in flesh to us so that we can see what he's like, we can see how he responds, and we can hear what he has to say. And uh, the fact that he is firstborn of all creation, that is a, I know that that text makes it sound like that he is, um a created being and it's it's not that he's a created being it's that he's god he's predated creation and he is the lord but he did take on himself a human body and uh, psalms 
2 talks about that. Today I have begotten you. And so there is a point in time in which he uh, was in flesh like everything else. And of everything that exists, he is the number one priority. He is first and foremost above everything else. I realize it's a little bit uh, confusing that yet remember the church here was studying some stuff about different creatures having being emanations from God and so this is these are are verses that are intended to help us see the greatness of our Savior he is majestic uh, he is wonderful he is wholly awesome and uh, one day if you know him you'll be privileged to be in his presence to have the same address that he has and that we'll be able to we'll have access to him and this is just it's mind-boggling it's it's you, man can't dream up something like this only god this is a god-sized blessing this is a god-sized um display of real mercy and real grace that is beyond anything that we could ever imagine and so here is our savior he is the image of the invisible god he is the priority of everything that has been created or that is in creation and then secondly we see the savior's connection to the creation itself uh, in the text verse 16 it says for in him all things notice that phrase frequent phrase all things it's four or five times four times that in him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible thrones dominions rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him verse 17 and he is before all things and verse 17 further on down and in him all things work together now the emphasis is just to help us see that nothing is being left out he is uh, the creator of everything uh, the, the phrase there heaven things in heaven things on earth just talking about uh the things down here he is the creator of everything and there's nothing here that exists that he didn't create and he's also the creator of everything in heaven there's nothing there that exists that he didn't create and then also he is um the creator of physical and spiritual things it says things on earth not only visible but invisible he is the creator of those things he is the source of those things and then he's also the source of all government authorities. There are four terms that are used, uh, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. They are almost synonyms. It seems like that what Paul is doing is he's just gathering up as many words as he can gather to let you know that there's no, there's no authority, there's no government, there's no uh, headship or kingship or whatever that exists, that he is not behind it. He created it. This is true. This is not speculation. This is not mystical thinking. This is not superstition. This is fact. He is behind that. He is on the throne. And he is God. And then going on, it says not only that, but he is, verse 17, he is before all things, which necessitates that he is a creator because the creator has to predate the things that he created. So he is before all things if you think about it and here it is again it's mind-boggling he has no beginning and no end so you can go back as far as you can possibly conceive that he's been there 
And everything else has to be created. That's uh, one of the philosophical arguments that people have to try to, to disprove or belittle the fact that God is eternal is they say that everything has to be created and everything needs a creator to create it if it's existing. And that's generally true with everything except one thing, and that's God. And that's why I, I stress to you over and over again that God is the only being that has the power of being in himself. He needs nothing else. He has no beginning. He has no end. He knows everything. He created everything. He is the one that instituted all the laws of creation, including the, the, the laws of physics and chemistry and light and the properties of light and all these things. He designed it. And he designed the molecular structure, the atoms, and all of this. You may think it's extravagant, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's very clear. Um, our God is so majestic. It's so great. And uh, so, anyway, he is before all things, and he holds all things together. He is the one that, when I was taking chemistry, one of the things they talked about in there was how the, mo the molecules and the atoms they are attracted, they stick together, but actually the, the particles repel each other. There's something that holds them and makes them stick and hold, be co cohesive, making matter solid. And we know what that something is. They don't know what it is. They, they still speculate, but we know who he is. He's the Lord. He holds all things together. So that, that takes care of two things that we're looking at in, in review, uh, and that is the Savior's connection with God and the Savior's connection with creation. Now we're going to settle down to our text, and that is the Savior's connection to the church. The church right, right here in this room. This is a local ch church. In the Bible, the Bible talks about the body of Christ, and that's the term that's used here is body. He's called the head. We're going to talk about that. But the church is, a, is, is said to be a body, and there is this sense in which this is a local body here, but there's also a sense in which the church, the universal body, is the entire church of all saved people in the, the, that are in the world. But usually, when you talk about the body, you're usually referring to the local body, how it functions and what temptations come and stuff like that. He is the head of that body. Verse 16, verse 18 says, He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We're going to read through that. I want to slow down a little bit. Um, a lot of metaphors that are used to describe the church. Uh, I was thinking of James 2 when he talks about uh, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring. The word assembly or called out ones is used to speak of the church. Uh, Peter, 1 Peter 2 9, talks about the, uh, addressing the saints there. It says, You are a chosen family. So family is a, is a word that's used for the church. He goes on to say a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession or people of God's, uh, his property, his, his, his property. But the word that is used there that I was looking at was the word family. Uh, we're called his flock. Uh, being examples to the flock talks about 1 Peter 5, 3. We're the bride of Christ. We're also the, the kingdom. But the term that we want to look at is the term body. Uh, and, and I think it's interesting that the Lord has given us terms and words 
that we understand. He uses this uh, anthropomorphic illustration of, of a man and a body so that we can understand and get a picture of it. You have a body, you have a head to the body, and you have members of the body. And we understand that. We can see that. We can see how that the members all work. Some of them may be looking like they're a little bit independent, but yet they're all in control and working together to cooperate. If a person doesn't, if the members of the body don't function <coughs> together, then that person becomes a spastic and they're not, not able to control themselves. But the body, all the members work together, but they work together under the directive of the head. And so when Jesus uses that idea of a body and Christ being the head, we, we can sort of get a picture of what that means and how it means. So the term body is a good term. It's used sometimes uh, just to, in the scripture of just a body. Uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, uh, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor your body, uh, what you will put on it. He's just talking about the physical body. Uh, that's one illustration. But it's also used um, to speak of the church, and that's what I think the analogy for us is that the body is pictured um, as being an illustration, if you will, of the church. First Corinthians 12, if you want to turn over to it, is a passage that Paul is dealing with spiritual gifts and things of this nature, and he's talking about the body, uh, the church as a body. And he says in verse 12 of First Corinthians, 12 uh, says, even as the body is one and yet has many members. Now we understand that. And we know he's going to be aiming at the church, but he's putting a parallel here to a body. He says, even as the, the body is one, that is, it's kind of unified and organized. The body is one, yet it has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many members, are part of one body. So also in Christ. That's that's a good illustration, and that that illustrates kind of what we see here. Here's the church. Everybody here has different differences, different kinds of foods, preferring different kinds of uh, entertainment. I like football. My daughter-in-law hates football. She thinks it's a waste of time, money, effort, personnel, air. Uh, the world would be much better off without football. But she likes ballet. Well. Although she doesn't think of ballet as being any kind of sport. Anyway, that's culture. But that's what it is. It, everybody, what I'm trying to say is that everybody's different. We have different likes, uh, different kinds of foods we like, uh, different things that we enjoy doing if we could do anything we wanted to, or if we had a list uh, or a large bank account and we could buy something, we'd probably buy different things. and go different places, and we like different uh, actors, and so we're all different. But yet, though we are different, we are together united in our love for the Savior, and we work <laughs> together, and we're glad to work together, and we're glad to support each other and to help each other. And uh, it is true that sometimes we get busy, and we have things we have to do, and we're not always in the same room together at the same time, but we're working together, we're united together, we're part of one body. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. There are many members, but one body, so also is Christ. For also by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And that's an important statement. Some have misunderstood that to say, to talk about uh, being, after salvation, you come back and you get baptized. 
But this is talking about uniting the body, pulling the body together. We have individual members, but the Holy Spirit is among us all. And his word is the, the communication for us. It gives us direction and wisdom. And so those are the things that kind of make it cohesive, hold us together. And uh, so we are united in one body by this wonderful presence of the Spirit of God. And just remember that it isn't an it or a he, he is a person, and uh, he is the one who holds us together. Even though in the Greek it is neuter, he's not uh -huh. a person, and he is the one that unites us together. Uh, and we want to be in touch with him. We want to walk with him, and we, we don't want to run ahead of him, which is something that I can do, or lag behind, which is something else I can do. We want to be in touch with him. And so here he, he is talking about we've been united together if you were into one body. And it's, even though we're Jews and Greeks, or some of us are slaves and free, Galatians also says male and female, we are all united together in Christ. And we drink of, in that interesting term, we partake of it, we drink of one spirit. So that, 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 uh, that this, since the day of Pentecost, we are have been blessed by the outpouring, and that's the term that is used, I think, in Jude, where the Spirit is poured out, and that, that's an abundant display of the Spirit of God into our midst so that all of these individual members are united together and have the Spirit of God flowing through us and the Word of God giving us direction so that we are one body, even though we are many members. Uh, we had a a real nice family that was in our midst a number of years, and they moved up to Ohio. Uh, uh, Ethelin, I can't think of his name now. Howard, Howard, yeah, Howard, Howard Ethelin. <laughs> He's gonna laugh when he knows I couldn't think of his name. He's always calling and saying, I'm your friend Peter. Anyway, um, but Howard he told me one time, he said they went through a church split. He said that is the most painful thing I've ever gone through. It is really hard. And I can see it because you're taking a living organism of people and you're ripping it apart. You're tearing it apart. It should never happen. It's because we get our will in the way. We want the red carpet. Somebody told me the other day that we want to put an Alabama red down here on the carpet. But he was teasing. But uh, I, yeah, I'm not trying to do that either. But you can get your little favorite things or your favorite food or whatever. And you can all of a sudden, once you start walking away from the Lord and, and the Spirit and you become self-focused like that, it really does damage to the church and to your relationship with your people. So you want to preserve the unity in the church. You want to do that. And that's very important. And it maintains that. So here we have this uh, church, one body, member, many members. And then Paul used the illustration about a foot. Um, says I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. But is it any of this reason that's part of the body? If the ear says because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, is it not this reason that's part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has appointed, notice that word appointed. Mm. Now God has appointed the members so that, watch this, every person in this room that knows the Savior has been appointed by God, by the Lord, to a position and to work. What does Ephesians say? That, that we are created for good works, that God has created for us to walk in them. Uh, he has appointed the members, each one of them, 
in the body just as he likes, just as he desires. So it's God's desire that I'm doing this. It's God's desire that you're doing that. We just want to function as clearly and as effectively as we can. Not so that people will put our name in the bulletin and say, oh my, you're giving that, that you're doing, doing that. That's really good. It's not, not for that. It's for his glory. It's for his honor. The reward is not now. It's then uh, when we stand before him. Each one of them in the body, just as he desires. And if they are one member, uh, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. So the point is, and that's all of this, I, I know I'm kind of wearing you out. But it's important to look. The church is a body, many members. Uh, we are organized and tied together by the Spirit of God. It is a, it is really a living organism <clears throat> that is dwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God is permeating in the church. And so it's really a, a living organism in that sense. We are, and that's a good thing. That's a that's a powerful thing, and uh, that's. We may one day, we talked about it last night, and I'm not a prophet of doom, but we may one day suffer from persecution, and most of the church in the, in the world is suffering persecution, and so we've been escaping a lot. But if it does, we're still organization. It, it touches the Lord, it hurts him, but it means that we are somewhat effective in being children of light in the midst of a dark world. So that's, that's the picture of the body. There's one other... Uh, and this is confusing to me. It's a hard one for me to, to get through because I don't know exactly how to relate it. But in Luke chapter 11, you want to turn over to Luke chapter 11. The body becomes a metaphor to illustrate not just the church, but the physical and spiritual life of a believer. The life of a believer. And let me just read it to you. Luke 11, 33 and 36. I know it's going to sound a little confusing, but we'll clear it up. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Watch, therefore, watch out. Watch, let's see here. Therefore, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. All right, what has he got here? We're looking at two things. We're looking at the lamp, which is a source of illumination. And then we're looking at the eye, which is also a source of illumination. Here's, here's the one of the things that makes it difficult is the the um, in verse 33 the lamp is what gives the light he says no one after light putting a lamp and puts it away on a, in a cellar or under a basket but on a lampstand the lamp is giving a light that light illumines helps us know how to live and how to walk and that's that's what the lamp does those are the little lamps they had little uh, pottery type of lamps with a little wick in them and they put olive oil in the light and they could walk around and it would give them light. Right, but then the beginning 34, um, in verse 33, the lamp is the light, the communication, the word, which is the source of light. And then verse 34, the eye is the source of light. Look at what he says. He says, the eye is the lamp of your body. The eye is that part that gives the light for your body. When your eye is 
clear, and that word clear, looking that up, is actually better translated single. Okay, so if your eye is single, your whole body is also full of light. That light means of direction. And when it is bad or wicked, your whole body is full of darkness. So here's the, the eye. And um, we don't think of the eye as being giving out light or anything like that, but the eye is the part of the body, and that's what this illustration, Jesus is using the body to illustrate. The eye is the part of the body that can see and perceive things that are going on, perceive the light, hear it be the truth of God, perceive it, and know how to walk, know how to live. The eye is that gate through which we can see and, and navigate. Jesus talked about blind leading the blind because they can't see, but we have an eye, and the eye is that part of the body that enables us to do that and enables us to see and to be able to navigate. And so um, here he uses this phrase, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear or single, your whole body is full of light, but when it is wicked, your whole body is full of darkness. All right, so what he's saying is that what gives you direction in light is what you're receiving in your eye, what you're what you're taking in. If you're receiving the light, then it's going to you're going to that light's going to produce direction and wisdom in your life, and you're going to be able to walk effectively. But if it's not, if it is if, if it's distorted, if your your personal biases come in and change that so that you are receiving things that are not from the spirit of God, they're not given just by wisdom, then these things are going to distort your body and your eye is going to become contaminated. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know it's kind of heavy. But I think that's why he uses the word single there, is that our focus needs to be single. It needs to be directed toward the lamp, to the light that comes. And that's what he says there. He says the eye is the lamp. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is single, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, or wicked, your body is full of darkness. And so he's talking about direction, the spiritual direction in your life. And he's saying that using an illustration, and again, I, I, I don't want to wear this out. I've talked about it several times. But Jesus usually taught on two levels. He taught on one level to the masses, the public. But then he taught on a little bit deeper level when he said these, the, to you these things have been You've been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to those outside, it has not been given. So there are some things here that talk about the light and stuff like that. We we may just be talking about physical things, but if you look at the text, he's talking about spiritual direction, spiritual wisdom, spiritual input into your life that gives you wisdom and direction, but you want your focus to be single, not to be scattered around, not to get to a lot of different, a lot of different kinds of input, a lot of different theories. I mean, there's all kinds of kinds of stuff that, out there that people can offer to give you some direction. So he says there in verse 35, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. That, that, that's a that's a that's a serious call or warning to be careful that the things that are in you that are given direction. Paul talked about that that we people are seeking out. Uh, they have itching ears. They're seeking out teachers of their own making, what, what they happen to like and what makes them feel good. And he's saying, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body <clears throat> is full of light, no part, no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated 
as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. And so um, this, this passage here talks about the body. That's what he talks about, the lamp and the body, as being this, the light, representing the light, the Christian life and how we walk. And so as we, we're coming to the end of this section, Jesus is the head. And the head is the one that communicates to the body. And he is the one who helps us and tells us, we listen to his, in his word, what we choose to follow, what, we, what comes in, what affects our life. And we need to know where the source is. The source is God's word. And we need to be sensitive to that. And that needs to be the input for wisdom and direction in life. Not the opinions of just our peers or the opinions of the History Channel or NBC or some politics. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's word needs to be the input and Christ needs to be at the head of the, He's the head of the body. And so we want to be listening to that. I hope I haven't confused you. I think it's a it's an important thing to realize that you 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 want to have your focus in your life and your focus on Christ and his word as a single focus and not to be distorted, not to be uh, um, have it weakened or watered down, but be be careful where we go for the truth. And so that's the thing that, that I wanted to leave with you insofar as Christ is the head of the church, the body. The headship um, directs our focus so that the light is single and it comes from God's word and it gives us his wisdom so that we can follow him. Um, Secondly, uh, it says not only is he the head of the church, but he says he is also the sustainer of the church or the source of the church. Not only is he the head, not only is he the one that's in charge, not only is he the one that we go to and get this information and follow and apply it to our lives, but he is the founder or the sustainer of the church. I think John MacArthur in his commentary used the word source, which is a good word as well. Uh, the, the actual word in the the, the commentary that I look, or the the grammar book, book on grammar that I look at, said he is the, the origin. Use that word, the origin. And so um, he is the origin of the church. He is the the church is not a, an accident. It's not something that just happened. It is his plan. It is his work. It is his directive that brought it to, pa to pass. And he is the one that's undertaken. He is the one that told the disciples to wait in that upper room and he's the one that sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't come until Christ was honored and glorified. And so when he, when the Holy Spirit came and they say, you see these things, these miracles that are taking place, you see the work of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? It means Christ is right now at the head, at the right hand of God the Father that he's sending. He's active there on your behalf and he is sending the Spirit down here to function in our midst and to work in our midst. And so he is, he is, uh, he is the founder of the church. Ephesians, one of my favorite passages on that is Ephesians chapter 1, which says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, don't miss the, the pronouns there. The first pronoun is he chose us. That's God the Father. <laughs> just as God the Father chose us in him, that's Christ. So just as God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world before the universe was created. Um, when you figure that out, it's hard for me to figure that one out. It, it's hard for me to think how out of the, the Lord could choose anybody before they're even born. 
but here it's, it's he's the one that's doing it uh, and he is the one not that just slams us down on our face so that we have to to choose him but he is the one that works in our heart and our lives to make us want him to make us really want him and to seek him if any man loves the world the love for the father is not in him that's what he says that that the fascination with the world which by the way i have i know what it's like and that fascination with the world comes in and clogs up the affection in my life that should be that god has given me to be directed to himself it clogs it and it distorts it so that i'm not able to function in a loving way to the father as long as i am having my eye focused or not single but directed away from him do you see the, the the connection there it's easy to be sidetracked in my affection walking with the lord is not just a one-sided thing it is true that we can't walk with him without the lord's direction but he has also told us what we need to do we need to be faithful too you need to be faithful in your word you need to be faithful in studying the word you need to be faithful in your prayer time you need to be faithful in your church attendance you need to be faithful in giving you need to be faithful in witnessing these are things that we need to do we can't do any of them very well but we need to do them all and we need to do them as unto him and ask him and let him give us wisdom and direction but really seek to obey him and i say that not having accomplished but wanting to do that wanting to be more like him you say you understand what i'm saying it's just really really important it's we are we are part of his body and his spirit is working in our midst and we want to be in touch with the head who is giving us wisdom and direction and things that we need to do so it's important he chose us in him then ephesians 1 before the foundation of the world what that we would be holy boy can you believe that he's chose us to be holy what is the one thing we're not it's holy that, that we are steeped in self-centeredness and sin and but he's chose us he chose us in christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless and he's the one that's going to have to do it i i have probably worn out since we started studying i appreciate being studying john and talking about Jesus being the great shepherd because uh, I've, I have come, come to the Lord so many times just thanking him for being the shepherd but asking him to keep working because I need that work in my life I, I, there's so much in my life that I need the Lord to save me from to deliver me from and to help me and the same with you so we, we, we I thank you I thank the Lord for that and I pray he'll make us holy and blameless before him uh, by predestining predestining us and uh, that, again, that predestining is not where he comes in and just takes away our self-centered desires. He works in our hearts. This is why, this is why it takes so long sometimes to see God work into people's lives because he doesn't just come in and kill us and give us all this stuff and, and we could overnight. It takes, sometimes it takes years to really grow and to see people, God working in people's lives. And, uh, we think we can do it better, but we can't. God's the one that does it. He knows how to do it. He knows what he's doing. And it takes, it sometimes takes a long time. I know it takes a long time with me because I am very stubborn. I'm very self-centered and uh, I have a very strong self-will. And so he's so good, so patient, so merciful, so kind to put up with me. And, and he's working and I know he's doing that. He's working in my life. He's, he's, uh, 
every week I can see areas that he's showing me, like these, this study here, I've been doing this and I've been really seeing how he's using these things in your life and in my life and helping us to grow. Um, that he's predestining us to the adoption as sons, sons of those that look like the father. He's, he has predestined us, he has set our career already, he's decided what our career is going to be under his, his working, his grace, his mercy, his activity. And uh, he's doing that. He's predestining us to look like him, to be his sons. That's what he's doing. That's that's what he's making us to be little, uh, like little uh, Jesus is in a way, like like the like his children. He's predestining us to adopt his sons, but it's through the head to Jesus Christ, and it's to himself. Why in the world? It's so hard to understand why he would want us. Why he would want us to be to pre predestined this way, and then directed toward himself, as you mentioned, which is a good statement, that, he, that we are his gift to sons, and that he's predestining us to himself in that sense, according not just to the pleasure of his will, but to the good purpose, pleasure of his will, so that it is a good thing that's what he's aiming at. That's what he wants. He wants us to be predestined according to the good pleasure of his will, which will result to the praise of the glory of his grace. His grace means that this is something we don't deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We have sinned and walked away, and we are vile and wretched. But his grace is to be magnified through his working in our lives. One day, uh, I think we will stand, in fact, I'm certain of it, that we will stand before whatever congregation of angels and creatures that God has created, we will stand before him to give personal testimony and witness of the majestic grace of God displayed in our lives. Because the one thing we deserve more than anything else is judgment. And the one thing that he is pouring out on us in such abundant measure is grace. And we'll be trophies of that. We'll, we'll have the opportunity to share what he's done on our behalf. And he will be up there with nail prints in his hands and feet, which are proof of the fact that he has died for me. That is hard. That is really heavy. He's so good. Um, and so he, we're trophies of his grace, which he graciously bestowed which is a way of saying taking the dump truck and just dumping it on us, bestowed uh, on us in the beloved. And so this is his, he is the source of the church. He is the one that has bought the church. He has died for the church. He is working for the church. I need to move on because I'm going to run out of, run out of time. He is also called the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn, remember, we've already looked at that. He's the firstborn of creation back in further in the notes. Here he's the firstborn, not just of creation, but the firstborn from the dead, which uh, of, of all the creatures that are created, he's the firstborn. Um, not that he's just a, a created being, he is God, but he took upon himself a body. But he is also, of all things that have died, the priority of those. He is the, the, the ultimate one that was resurrected. We're going to be like him. We're going to follow him in that resurrection. And so he is the first priority. <clears throat> From the dead. Um, that's a, just a real hard one for us to grasp. <clears throat> we, we know what the term firstborn means. It does mean chronologically. It can be used for that. 
but also it's a term of rank and of highest position, the firstborn son and the firstborn of, of, of all who have been resurrected. He is the priority. He is the best. He is the greatest. Weiss comments on this, which I thought was interesting. Um, he says, the quote, the firstborn of the dead, end of quote. Uh, in the words, the firstborn of the dead, Paul shows how Christ is the beginning of the new spiritual life in the church by his resurrection. Quote, he comes forth from among the dead as the firstborn issue from the room. So he is the priority. He, he is the ultimate one. And then finally, and I know I'm moving on pretty quickly, but he is also called the preeminent one. I think that's the term that John MacArthur used. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the man. This is, this is what's behind Paul's writing uh, when uh, Paul talks about um, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus in Philippians 2, 5. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This is talking about Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is just a staggering process of humiliation that he went through of, of humbling himself. Therefore, because he did that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's, what he's saying is that Christ, because he humbled himself, he's going to be exalted. He's going to be exalted. Every knee is going to bow to him, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And the question that we might ask, the one that I asked when I first started studying that passage was, if he was already God and everything, then what, how is it that you're going to re-exalt him? And you're going to lift on what's already God, going to put him up and put the title back on him. And, uh, but the answer is that um, never has man stood at the throne of the universe and been exalted to the point that God has. Never, never man has never been there. But here's the case where he is. This man is going to be standing there and he's going to be exalted. You can read about it in Revelation. Where after the the uh, they see the Lamb standing there before the throne, who's worthy to take the scroll and break the seals, and uh, he is he is the one who takes the scroll, walks up to the throne, takes it directly from the hand of God, and then the angels all around the throne, not only sing praise and worship the one who sits on the throne, but also to the Lamb, to sing praise and worship to the Lamb because he is God, he is worthy, and so this is a this is a, an exaltation, the highest exaltation of this one. Who died for me, this man who died for me and for you. Just think, uh, I don't know what color eyes he has, probably not blue because he's Jewish. Doesn't matter. One day we will have the opportunity to look into the face, into the eyes of the one who gave his life for us. That'll be a hard, hard thing and a wonderful thing at the same time. Uh, Warner, Elaine, Siggy. Some of our, our good friends, Gladys and others, are already there. They have that privilege. We'll have it one day to see the face of the one who gave himself for us. And Crosby. 
sang about that in one of her songs. I forget now exactly the wording, but she sang about how the Holy the scene as, as it is. She was blind, but when she gets her sight, we're saying she talks about seeing as the Savior. So anyway, uh, here's the one who is who is all fullness is God, and um, he is the one that before the before whom the universe bows. So the question is, and I asked these at the beginning, and so I'm asking now, what is your response, Dan? What is my response to him? Because I don't think we can look at this and not be aware that we are in need of responding to him. Just do nothing is a response. And uh, so I, the, we've looked at the Lord, we've seen his majesty, his glory, his excellence, his greatness. Uh, he's the visible image of the invisible God, his sterling character, his God in flesh. Um, we who are sinful, self-centered creatures, how do we respond to this one who is the sovereign creator who gave himself, who chose to come and pay for our sin? Uh, he stands as the originator of all things, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones, dominions, rulers. He is the authority of all things. He precedes all things. He holds all things together. We lack understanding and words to be able to describe him. He is exalted to be part of the church. Uh, the church that he founded, the church that he gave his life for. Uh, he is the head of the church. Um, it's, it's about his death and resurrection that we, have, our sins have been paid for. So we are privileged to know him and to love him, to talk to him. Uh, I did that last night in my bed after the lights were out in the dark. Uh, there in that little house back in the woods there, I prayed that the, the God of the universe heard me. And uh, he, he is so good to do that. The, the obstacle is not being stuck way out in the woods. The obstacle is sin. And he's yeah. taking care of sin. So what is your response to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our blessed Lord. I, I can never undo that. I can't. Words are not there. I would love to see. Um, and, and if we could get a glimpse of you, an accurate glimpse of you, I'm sure that it would be on our face even this morning because you're so great and so majestic. I pray for our hearts. I pray that you'll be working in our lives to make us love you and put you first before anything and everything else. And just be uh, both merciful and patient as you are, but persistent. Don't let us wiggle out from the responsibility of responding to you and to surrendering our lives to you and bringing honor and glory to your name. I pray you'll do that in my life for your glory, and I pray you'll do it in our lives. And I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.